Thank you, choir. Um, as I said earlier, we have been traveling through the season of Easter looking for glimpses of life. In those first weeks, the first Easter Sunday and the couple Sundays that followed that, we looked at the resurrection appearances that come in the gospel, how those early followers of Jesus encountered the risen Christ. And then we moved into the book of Acts and looked at how the early church experienced the risen Christ in the sharing in community, uh, in that story of the stoning of Stephen, that horrific story, a glimmer of light in the grace of forgiveness. And now we're turning to a story about the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul has come a long way, and as we know, he's journeying from city to city with the good news, and he comes to Athens, to Athens, to the city of philosophers, of Socrates and Plato about 400 years before this. And he's brought into this area, um, it's called the Areopagus, where they debate ideas and notions and invited um, to share the new idea that he brings. And this is what happens. Our second scripture today comes from Acts, verses 17, chapter 8, 17, verses 22 through 31. Now Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the one who is sovereign over heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though God needed anything since the God to give all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of their places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for and find God, though indeed God is not far from each one of us. For in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by one whom God has appointed and, and of this has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving, creating God, your life is pulsing through every bit of creation. 
May we experience it pulsing in us as we hear your word and bless the world you love. Amen. I don't usually think of the Apostle Paul as a smooth talker. In the letters that he writes, the ones we have in Scripture, Paul can be quite intense. Remember, this is a guy who has experienced a radical transformation. Just two weeks ago, we read a scripture where he was cheering on a mob as they stoned to death an early follower of Christ. But the Paul we meet in this morning's text has now himself experienced the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he has changed. He is all in now, himself a zealous follower of Christ. In the south, we might say that he is on fire for the Lord. And so in his letters like Galatians and Corinthians, Paul is intense, often angry, or at least testy, sometimes distraught. We find him in the midst of controversy. He's arguing with all he's got against real enemies and with beloved friends who, in his view, have lost the way, forgotten who they are. And so he doesn't mince words because the good news he has experienced in the risen Christ is, for him and for the whole world, a matter of life and death. It is everything. It is urgent. The Apostle Paul is passionate and he is revolutionary. The whole world must change for good now. And even in Acts, where Luke is writing and telling the story of Paul, as Paul travels from town to town, the rhythm of his life goes like this. He arrives in a new city, he goes to the synagogue and to the marketplace, and he preaches until he is inevitably run out of town. It happens almost every time. He's not usually a smooth talker. But here Paul is in Athens, the city of philosophers and learning, the place Plato and Socrates had taught some 400 years before. The city is still a place of inquiry and debate. Just before this scripture picks up, we hear that the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It makes it sound like that's a bad thing. I love doing that. So Paul goes to the marketplace and joins the conversation like any other traveling philosopher. And he gets noticed because how could you not? And they bring him to the Areopagus, a place for debate. Maybe it's more like a court that sits downhill from the Acropolis. So if you think of the Acropolis with the Parthenon, the Areopagus is down from that. And the Athenians say to him, Tell us, tell us this new teaching you are bringing for you are bringing some strange ideas and we want to know what they mean. And Paul stands before them and he begins, men of Athens, Athenians, I've just arrived in town and I've been walking around and I've noticed how very, very religious you are in their rhetorical pattern speaking almost always begin with a bit of praise for the audience. I've noticed how very religious you are. You have a God and a temple for everything, a God for this and a God for that. You're so thorough. I wandered into one temple and found an inscription even to an unknown God. You even have a temple for an unknown God. 
Paul has observed their practices. He enters into their conversation following their rhetorical patterns, and then he says this, what you worship as something unknown, well, let, I'm going to proclaim it to you. You've got this temple to an unknown God, well, let me fill in the blanks. Can we all agree that God is sovereign over heaven and earth? Well, if that's so, you've been looking in the wrong place. God can't be found in shrines made by human hands or statues sculpted in stone. No, God is everywhere. God is the source of all things. God gives every being life and breath. We don't set the bounds for God. God does that for us. God creates us. Everyone and everything, we are all created from one ancestor, from one blood, all of us children of God. And then, lest they think he's just too far out there, he says, why? It's like your own poets say, in God we live and move and have our being, and we too are God's offspring, just like your own poets say. And if all this is so, we need to change. Repent. We need to live like this. Live as if we live and move and have our being in God. Live as if we are the children of God. This is who we are. And God has told us so through the one God has raised from the dead. And there it is. Pretty smooth. Logical. It follows what their own poets say and it builds to resurrection. Since you worship an unknown God, let me fill in the blanks. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead so that we all might have life, so that we all might be free. Let's not miss what the apostle has just done. He's turned their world on its head. Remember, they live and move and have their being in a world ordered by empire. And not, not the Greek empire anymore, the Roman empire. Athens and Greece at this point in history are really yesterday's empire. Rome is in charge now and the world is ordered top down. By power over with that order enforced by violence and force. But if... If what Paul has just said so smoothly is true, then none of that can hold. If God is ultimately sovereign, then Rome is not. If God is the ultimate source of everything, the one to whom we owe our lives, then the powers of this world are not. If we are all really descended from one ancestor, if we are all really of one blood, then no class or race or nation of people has any claim of power over, over anyone else. We are all one family, equally one family. And if we truly live and have and move, and have our being in God, if God is present with and in every bit of creation, then no bit of creation can subjugate any other bit of creation. The earth itself is not anyone's to subjugate or control or abuse, not Rome's, not yours, not mine. What therefore you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. 
In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has set all creation free. We are God's own offspring. Christ's resurrection life is present in every bit of creation, which means that every bit of creation gets to be free. Now, I don't think we can overestimate the liberative power of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It certainly has not been lost on marginalized communities over the centuries. Did you know that this scripture was a cornerstone of the abolition movement? And since then, for the African-American liberation movement all the way to this day, particularly verse 26, better known in the King James translation, from one blood, God made all the nations that inhabit the earth. As early as 1800, Benjamin Banneker was writing to Thomas Jefferson, quoting this scripture, while the entrenched powers of slavery were misusing other parts of scripture to justify the enslavement of human beings. Banneker and others who followed him called on Christians to look at this text, saying, if from one blood God created all humanity, then we all stand in the same relationship to God, meeting here together in a shared plane of absolute freedom and equality. The liberative power of this text has been claimed by Latinx liberation theologians who are particularly centered on the liberation that Christ brings to the poor. Justo Gonzalez notes that if we truly believe that we are made from blood to inhabit the earth, an earth that God in Christ inhabits with us, then to inhabit cannot mean only to occupy. To inhabit must also mean to care for it in such a way that it continues to be habitable. What would it mean for our relationship to the planet to the planet we have pushed to the threshold of collapse to see creation like that. And for queer folks like me, if God created us all from one blood, if in God we all live and move and have our being, if God is equally present in every bit of creation, if we are all children of God, then God is just as present in queer bodies, in trans bodies, in bodies of every gender expression, just as present in us as God is in everyone else, just as filled with resurrection life, just as free. This Easter, we have set out looking for glimpses of resurrection life. We've seen it in the first stories of how our ancestors encountered the risen Christ. We've seen it in those glimpses of early community that came to life sharing with everyone as they had need. We've seen it in the stoning of Stephen in the midst of the world's violence in the redeeming power of forgiveness in God's abounding grace. What would it mean if we went looking for resurrection life in every bit of creation and saw it there and lived like that. I've spent the last couple of weeks, as some of you know, with some amazing friends. At the start of the month, I traveled with Janie Spar for a few days up to Portland. You all know Janie. She's a friend of this church. She has stood courageously on behalf of LGBTQIA plus folks and our families confronting the powers, including the church. 
Janie and I went to Portland, and we talked with folks there about inclusion, as we are wont to do. But we also went there to visit a friend of ours who is living with ALS, to visit with her and her wife. They are dear to us. We've been together in this struggle for justice for years, Janie with them longer than I have been, but this couple stood with Jeff and me at our wedding, and we stood with them at theirs. On the Tuesday of our visit, we drove up into Washington State and visited a garden that's open for a month every year during lilac season. We strolled the paths, smelled every variety of lilac we could until, until frankly, I couldn't tell the difference anymore. And then we sat under a big shade tree and we talked. Now, when I travel, I'm one who is usually ready to get on to the next thing. There are sights to see. Let's move on to the next one. But that day, we just sat there in that garden and talked. The scent of lilacs in the air as if time stood still and didn't matter much. There we were, each distinct in our own embodiment, embodied together, rooted and grounded in love. On the plane ride home, after three days full of life and love and conversation, Janie said this, you know, Scott, when we look back on these days we have just shared, I think what we'll remember most is lingering there together in that garden surrounded by those lilacs. The God who made heaven and earth gives life and breath to all mortals and to all creation. In God, we live and move and have our being. We are God's offspring, each and all. I've spent this past week with Yolanda Norton and Louisa Dantier, who preached and sang with us last weekend. Among Professor Norton's many callings, Old Testament scholar, creator of the Beyonce Mass, profound preacher, Professor Norton is a womanist theologian. Womanism is a movement that has its roots in the work of Alice Walker. It centers the lived experience of black women and girls and proclaims liberation from there. But it doesn't stop there. It finds liberation there and then proclaims liberation for everyone, for black women and girls, and then also for everyone who is oppressed on the basis of race or gender or gender identity or class. As Will Gaffney explains, womanism makes room at the table of discourse for the least privileged of the community, everyone invited to the table. And it challenges the privileged to engage liberation as well. To the extent that we are complicit in any oppression, we can be freed. We can be freed from our oppressing ways. We can stop. We can dismantle the systems that have benefited us for far too long at the expense of others. We can and we must listen and relinquish our oppression so that everyone gets to be free. 
Everyone fully human, everyone fully a child of God, everyone free to live and move and claim our being, as Alice Walker says, in a garden where every flower blooms. From the lived experience of black women and girls, womanist theologians proclaim and insist on a world where everyone gets to be free. We glimpsed that invitation powerfully last Sunday right here. As we come to this morning's scripture, looking for glimpses of life, looking for resurrection, we find it everywhere. We come upon the Athenians looking for this life day by day, searching every new idea with a temple even for an unknown God. And the Apostle Paul names the longing pulsing down through the centuries. We are created from one blood to inhabit the earth so that we will search for God, grope for God, and perhaps find God. And here's the thing, God is near. Not statues and shrines of stone, but in us. As one writer says, divinity, divinity doesn't look like gold, silver, or stone. It looks like people. All people. Every bit of creation overflowing with life. And when we see that, the world can never be the same the Apostle says to the Athenians and to us, we must change, repent. This old world with its imperial order that views God and humanity as something put away in a temple, something to be owned, something to be controlled. No, we live and move and have our being in a world chock full of the liberating love and presence of God. We inhabit a world empowered and made alive in resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has set all creation free. We are God's own offspring everywhere you look. Christ's resurrection life is present in every bit of creation, which means that every bit of creation is to be free.